The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Uh, This is our first Advent season together as a church. And we're going to be spending uh, three Sundays evaluating and and examining 
and enjoying this remarkable story. Uh, as you're making your way there, I'm just going to give you a bit of context to help get your bearings. Uh, a few th- details about Ruth. Uh, first of all, the story is really short. It's just 85 verses. We don't know who the author is. It could be Samuel. It could be a woman. We're, we're just not sure. It covers about 11 or 12 years, 10 of which are in chapter 1. So chapter 1 covers about 10 years. Chapter 2 covers a few months. Chapter 3, one day and one night. And chapter 4, about one year. As we turn our attention to the first chapter this morning, here's what I think is the main idea. And if I'm, if I'm doing this preaching thing correctly, then the main idea of my message uh, will, is also the main idea of the passage. So here's what I think is the main idea. God deserves radical trust, even when he seems hidden, because he is always up to more than we can see. God deserves radical trust, even when he seems hidden, because he is always up to more than we can see. We're going to think about that main idea in, in three theme, uh, three scenes. First, and I'll just t- give them titles starting with a B. So scene one, scene two, scene three, bereaved, broken, and back. Those are the three scenes of Ruth chapter 1. Scene 1, bereaved. Scene 2, broken. And scene 3, back. Bereaved, broken, and back. Scene 1, bereaved. Look there at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. There are a lot of contextual details packed into this opening verse. There's a historical marker in the days when the judges ruled. This was a period in Israelite history between the conquest of the promised land and the rise of the monarchy with Saul. So it was this roughly 200-year period about 3,000 years ago. About 3,000 years ago. We also see not just a historical marker in verse 1, but an agricultural marker. There was a famine in the land. This is a full-fledged humanitarian crisis. And then there's a geographical marker, Bethlehem in Judah. And this is ironic because Bethlehem means house of bread. There is no bread in the house of bread. And so the camera shifts from Bethlehem in Judah to the country of Moab. But there's not just a historical an agricultural and geographical marker, there's also a theological one. That phrase, in the days when the judges ruled, is conveying more than a series of dates. It's saying, in, in one of the darkest periods in Israel's history, when, to quote the very last verse of the previous book, Judges, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, it was then that there was a famine in the land. 
Famine had long been one of God's promised curses for disobedience. Deuteronomy 32, I will send wasting famine against them if they rebel, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. So our story begins on a very ominous note. I mean, just from verse 1, we know that it's a time of spiritual rebellion and disaster. And then that camera, which is moved from Bethlehem to Moab, it zooms in on one particular family. One family who, as a result of this famine, flees Bethlehem as refugees and heads east to the country of Moab. If you want to read your Bible well, you've got to pay attention to the little details. When it says that they are heading east to Moab, that is a spiritually scandalous detail. The Moabites are ancient enemies of Israel. Their land is a hotbed of pagan idolatry and pagan practices, including child sacrifice to their god, Chemosh. In fact, the nation had its origin. Do you, know, do you know how the nation began? It had its origin in incest when Lot impregnated his daughters. Genesis 19, 37, quote, the older daughter had a son and she named him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites of today. The Moabites feature prominently in the final chapters of Numbers when their king enlists Balaam to curse Israel and then the Moabite women seduce Israel into idolatry. So what's going on in these opening verses is a spiritually foreboding journey into enemy territory. Verse 2. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. We don't know for sure that this was a, a spiritually unfaithful decision to leave Bethlehem and go to Moab. I mean, maybe the famine was so severe that they basically had no choice and, and yet it does make you wonder, doesn't it, in light of the time period when people are doing, God's people are doing what's right, not in his eyes, but in theirs, that, that maybe this wasn't the most spiritually wise and spiritually mature calculus. Either way, they, the family arrives and they settle down and they start to make a life there in the foreign country of Moab. And for all we know, things for a while are going fine until verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 3 crashes into their lives. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. These sons married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. No doubt, Naomi is, is utterly devastated at the loss of her husband. Obviously, she's devastated. But she's not exactly destitute. I mean, she still has the security 
not just of one son, but of two, double insurance for her future. But of course, even this hope is short-lived. End of verse 4, after they had lived there about 10 years, 10 years, both Malon and Kilion died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. It is so difficult for us in the modern West to fathom the devastation that has just fallen Naomi. I mean, in, in ancient patriarchal society, a woman's security and worth could be counted with one single question. How many sons do you have? On the cultural scorecard, Naomi is a zero. No one to provide for her, no one to protect her, no one to carry on the family name. This is what's called a living death. Naomi, Naomi is, is shuffling around with her obituary already in her hands. Because the day her sons were buried, the day her sons were buried, she was too. All that remains with her are a couple of foreign daughters-in-law who possess no cultural power to change that cultural scorecard. Naomi's future is even it's so bleak, you could, you could argue that, it's, that it's, she's even worse off than Job. Because at least Job could have started over. Naomi cannot. Bereaved. Scene two. Broken. Scene two takes us from verse six through verse 18. Look there at verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So after 10 years of, of being in Moab and having the life wrung out of her like water from a sponge, Naomi gets word that God has visited Bethlehem. Merry Christmas. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. But she gets word that people are no longer starving in the house of bread. So she begins the, the long and shameful journey back until she finally stops because she can't bear any longer to watch her two daughters-in-law, whom she loves, walk their way, march their way into a hopeless future. They've lost their husbands. They've been barren. Their life has throbbed with pain in their homeland. What do they want for only to get worse? They're Moabites. There is nothing for them in Israel. Verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May Yahweh, that, that is, may my God show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May Yahweh grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. It's not that Naomi doesn't love them or need them. It's that she has common sense. Yeah, they're, they're widows, but they're still young. 
They, they can go back home and they can remarry among their own community, in their own family, among their own people. They can start over. They can build another life. The sun has only set on Naomi's life, not on theirs. Middle of verse 9, Then Naomi kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, No, 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 we will go back with you to your people. We're sticking with you, Naomi. You have been in our country. Now we are going with you to yours. But Naomi is having none of it. She is not deterred. Verse 11, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, why would you wait until they grow? Would you wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. So Naomi's little speech works with Orpah, but not with Ruth, who, despite continued efforts, and Naomi is, is repeatedly trying to deter Ruth. She doesn't give up the first time or the second time. Verse 15, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Go back with her, Ruth. What are you doing, Naomi is saying. I mean, Naomi, I can imagine Naomi essentially saying, life is filled with complicated choices. This is not one of them. Don't throw your life away. Notice that neither Naomi nor the narrator condemn Orpah for her choice. I mean, she was polite to offer to go with Naomi, but what she's doing is sensible. I mean, you can almost imagine Naomi's finger. She's, she's talking to Ruth. Now it's just her and Ruth, and you can almost imagine her finger pointing in the distance toward Moab as Orpah's obedient figure becomes smaller and smaller in the distance. Surely Ruth won't be far behind. Verse 16, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Naomi has tried appealing to common sense and conventional wisdom, but Ruth, this Moabite, responds with theology. Do you see the irony? A young, barren, widowed pagan is having to remind a seasoned old Israelite about the Lord of heaven and earth. It's not that Naomi is suddenly an atheist. I mean, she references the Lord at various times in this chapter, but at this critical juncture, at this critical moment, she is elevating Ruth's natural prospects and physical comfort over her spiritual welfare. 
And this should be a warning to us if we have any self-awareness whatsoever. Because it is possible, friend, it is possible to confess all the creeds and to affirm every word in our church's statement of faith and yet live like a practical atheist. I mean, sure, you say, of course, if you're a member of this church, you say God is real and even God is sovereign. But functionally, not confessionally, functionally, you can subtly start to live as if you are the measure of all things, as if you are him. In doing that, in the mundane, ordinary parts of our daily lives is not just some sort of personal idiosyncrasy or minor flaw. When you edit out God from your plans or your counsel to others, you are inevitably assuming his place. You're you're substituting yourself for him, which is the epitome of idolatry. Parents, parents, we need to beware. We need to beware of growing more invested in our kids' natural prospects or physical comfort than in their spiritual welfare. It is infinitely better for your kids to grow up and have a hard life, an outwardly unsuccessful life with Jesus than an easy one without him. I mean, it's better for them to not get into the right college, to not marry the perfect spouse, to not have a successful career, and yet to have Jesus than for them to fulfill all your hopes and dreams and make you look really good as an unbeliever. To be very direct, is the deepest desire of your heart for your kids to make God look good or you? Oh, moms and dads, let's not. Let's, let's learn from Naomi here. In this moment of weakness, let's not miscalculate the value of what is most important in our homes. Well, Ruth's response in verse 16 it's, it's famous personally. I think it's been sentimentalized and kind of sanitized in a, in a lot of weddings. No offense if you had it read in yours. But this is a gritty scene. Her response is bracing and it's gritty, seemingly unreasonable faith. But this Moabite, she knows that even though there's nothing for her in Bethlehem, Naomi's not wrong in terms of logic on a natural plane. Ruth agrees. Ruth knows there's nothing for her in Bethlehem in terms of human promise, but she sees something there. She knows something will be there that'll be worth it all. Not just Naomi, but Naomi's God. Many biblical scholars, I should say most biblical scholars agree that what we are witnessing here in Ruth's heart is nothing less than a conversion. I mean, notice how she personalizes the God of Israel. She doesn't just say to Naomi, no, 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 no. I'm not going back with Orpah to Moab. I'm coming with you, and I'm willing to respect your God. No, no, she says, your God is going to be my God too. 
And I also think this is a genuine conversion because of her very next statement, verse 17. Where you die, Naomi, I will die, and there I will be buried. This is an oath unto death, but she's not done. As, as one commentator puts it, she now goes over Naomi's head by calling on Yahweh specifically. May the Lord deal with me. Not just some generic deity. May Yahweh deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. This is not the way an idolater talks. And that's because though, these, though she's still a Gentile, she's no longer a pagan. She's a daughter of Yahweh. She is saying no to Chemosh and yes to the one true and living God. Two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' command in Mark 8, remember, to count the cost. And that's exactly what Ruth is doing here. Rather than returning to Moab to gain the world, she marches to Bethlehem, lest she forfeit her soul. Well, how does Naomi respond this time? <laughs> Verse 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to, to put it mildly, determined to go with her. She stopped urging her. I mean, you can imagine Naomi at this point just throwing up her hands with a, with a resigned sigh. I'm just like, all right, Ruth, if you want to throw your life away, have at it. But no one can say I didn't try to warn you. Before we move on to the, the final scene, I, I just want to note that, that even though Naomi is not in this story, a perfect model of faith, far from it. She has lived with Ruth for a decade. And apparently, apparently over the course of that decade, she has modeled enough of what it means and looks like to trust Yahweh and live for Yahweh that Ruth has found it compelling. That should encourage us. As one person put it, even at her lowest point, Naomi is a light bearer. Doesn't that encourage you? Scripture tells us that if we belong to Christ, we are his aroma in this world. And to those being saved, we are an aroma that brings life. 2 Corinthians 2. Naomi's name means pleasant. And despite all her failures... That was the kind of aroma, pleasant, that Ruth had smelled over the course of a decade in living with this Israelite woman. Scene one, Naomi is bereaved. Scene two, she is broken. Scene three, she's back. Verse 19, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Can this be Naomi? All the years, all the pain, all the loss, they have exacted a lot. They have exacted a toll from this once bright-eyed Bethlehemite. And instead of standing safely with her husband and sons, remember, last time they saw her, one husband and two sons. Now it's no husband and no sons. There's just this stranger. This, her only companion is this female foreigner. 
And as they stare into their old friend's face, they have a hard time seeing, glimpsing the Naomi they once knew. And Naomi's not offended by their lack of recognition. In fact, she agrees. Verse 20, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Marah. Literally, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Why? Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. This is the language of lament, and it pervades the pages of your Bible. This is just not a sweet, sanitized, family-friendly, positive and encouraging book. It will make you uncomfortable because so much of life is uncomfortable. But when you climb down into biblical lament, you know what you encounter? When you climb down into the, the darkness of the cellar of biblical lament, you encounter gutsy questions. In his helpful book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament, my friend Mark Vrogop points out that when we avoid the minor key, when we avoid the minor key of lament in our lives, we not only impoverish ourselves, we present a distorted Christianity to the world. Lament, he says, is a prayer in pain leading to trust. Lament is a prayer in pain leading to trust. He explains, quote, You might think lament is the opposite of praise. You might think lament is the opposite of praise. It isn't. Instead, lament is a path to praise. As we are led through our brokenness and disappointment, the space between brokenness and God's mercy is where this song is sung. Think of lament as the transition between pain and promise, the path from heartbreak to hope. To cry is human. To cry is human, but to lament is Christian. In other words, we don't downplay or avoid the struggles of life. We tenaciously claw our way through them with gritty trust. I already mentioned that, that Naomi isn't a perfect model of faith in this chapter. She's not a perfect model of lament either. In, in chapter 1, she's not voicing prayers like a psalmist. I mean, at this point, she... She's been emptied of not just her husband and her sons, but of hope itself. And yet, and yet, she acknowledges God's place, God's rightful place over all of her circumstances. Verse 13, the Lord's hand has turned against me. Verse 20, the Almighty has made me very bitter. Verse 21, the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. This kind of language is raw and visceral and might make us uncomfortable, but, but let's not hear her saying more than she is. Let's be careful 
that we don't hear a woman who is struggling deeply and put words in her mouth. She says God's made her life very bitter, but she doesn't say God is very bitter toward me. She says, God has made my life bitter, but she stops short of pointing her finger in his face and saying, you have acted wrongly. You are bitter toward me. In other words, she doesn't broadcast a lie about his character, and nor does she say, he's, like, I'm really bitter toward him. So she says, she says, He has made my life very bitter, but she doesn't then say, and therefore, I'm really mad and bitter back. Instead, she is resigned in acknowledging that he is sovereign. And sometimes that sovereignty feels painful in the moment. Like a female Job, like a female Job, she knows that the Lord No one else. The Lord God Almighty both gives and takes away. Friend, the way you respond to the raw language of of lament reveals something about your view of God. Is the God you trust, the God you worship, big enough to handle Job-sized and Naomi-sized complaints? I mean, did you know there are more psalms of lament than any other kind? One biblical scholar goes so far as to say, quote, lament isn't only allowed in the Bible, it's modeled in abundance. And then listen to this. God seems to want to give us as many words with which to fill out our complaint forms as to write our thank you notes. I just said that in church. I mean, that, that might feel like a kind of irreverent thought. But God is just not threatened or insulted by our honesty and our pain. Now, now it's true. It is true that we are not to murmur and grumble in our hearts against him. And Naomi did it. Remember? That's what I just observed. We're not to murmur and grumble against him. That's sin. But, but here's the difference, to, to put it perhaps too simply. <laughs> Grumbling is what you do when you're calling God's character into question. Lament is what you do when you're calling his character into action. Don't call his character into question. Go to him in prayer. Bring him all of your pain and call his character into action on your behalf. Well, in verse 21, when Naomi claims she's totally empty, she's wrong. She doesn't see the full picture. I mean, for one thing, she has a treasure right beside her in Ruth. See, one of the most striking things about Naomi, uh, or about the book of Ruth, you want to know how Ruth is unique among stories in the Bible? There are no dreams, no visions, no miracles. Which means that this is a book for people who look around their lives 
and see no dramatic answers to prayer. No mighty divine interventions and dreams or visions or wonders. You, you, you look up, you look around, and you, you look up, and you, you kind of sometimes wonder if, if God is there or if he is, is, is he on a sabbatical? Is he, is, how active is he? But beloved, one of the lessons of Ruth, this is so important for us to internalize and remind one another of, one of the lessons of Ruth is that we must not, we must never mistake God's hiddenness for his absence. Just because God seems hidden does not mean he is absent. He is always there, always up to more than you suspect but so much of his working, and this is that period between the heartbreak and the hope, between the pain and the promise, as, as that author mentioned earlier, so much of his working is subterranean. It's beneath the surface of what our eyes can easily see. As John Piper once put it, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. But one day, the God who moves in mysterious ways will make his purposes plain, and you can trust him. You can trust him. You can trust him in the meantime. Well, in conclusion, it might be tempting to finish this chapter and think, got it? Moral of the story, be like Ruth. Be more like Ruth. And Ruth is meant to be an example for us, but, but, but to stop there would be short-sighted. Because the more carefully we look at Ruth's behavior in chapter 1, the more we will detect the outline of one of her descendants. A thousand years later, he would leave his homeland, the ultimate place of security and comfort in heaven to come to a distant country where he would be treated like an outsider. Ruth doesn't realize it, of course, but in Jesus, her words are going to find fulfillment beyond her wildest dreams. In Jesus, God goes where we go. He stays where we stay. He becomes one of us. He, as our statement of faith says, he shares in our humanity without sharing in our sin. And just as Ruth says to Naomi, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. In the gospel, Jesus says to us, where you deserve to die, I will die. I will bear in your place on the cross the penalty for your sin. I will be killed. I will be buried. But while Ruth vows in this story, Ruth vows what to Naomi? I mean, it's a, it's a radical vow. She says, I will stick with you until death. Jesus can look at you, believer, and say, I'm not stopping there. I'm going to stick with you through death, through it. Your eternal security is sure because 
He can make, he alone can make that kind of audacious promise that I'm not just going to be with you, believer, until death. I'm going to be with you through death because he is the only person in human history who himself managed to enter the grave as a corpse and walk out as a king. The holidays can be a lonely time for people. And I know the holidays are hard for some of you. I mean, some of you read this story and you think, man, I just wish someone was as committed to me as Ruth was to Naomi. He is. Yes, Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Yes, she clung tightly to Naomi, but do you know how tightly Jesus clings to you if you're a believer? Your eternal security is grounded. This is the best news you will hear today. Your eternal security is grounded not in your feeble grip on him, but in his iron grip on you. This is what Christmas is all about. The Son of God made the ultimate journey, a radical choice that made no sense to the conventional wisdom of the world but he did it to rescue us and secure us and ensure that nothing would ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And if you're here and you have not yet committed yourself to King Jesus in faith, then you need to, in the words of 1 Thessalonians 1, turn away from idols to trust the living and true God. Because you'll never become like Ruth. You'll never become like this courageous Moabite girl until you pledge yourself to the one to whom she points. Welcome, friends, to the gospel according to Ruth. Let's pray. Lord, you are always up to more than we can see. You are always up to more than we can see. And so even when you seem hidden, God, you deserve our commitment and our trust. And we pray that not only as individual Christians, but as a church, we would be marked by corporate and persistent trust in you. We thank you for making that long journey to cling tightly to us. And we praise you that you will do so, not just until the point of death, but through it, world without end, as we enjoy you in the world to come. It's in Jesus' beautiful name that we pray. Amen.